his passivity may have contributed in part to the ultimate outcome here. Um, and that might have been to the good. After all, we ended up not having a war over this, which I think is a good outcome. Hi there, it's WAMC News Director Ian Pickus. On this episode of the WAMC News Podcast, we're going to go back to the 1870s and talk about then-New York Governor Samuel Tilden, his politics, his race for the presidency, and the Compromise of 1877 left a complicated legacy for New York and the country. I spoke with Dr. Robert Childs, senior lecturer in the Department of History at the University of Maryland. He's the co-editor of the journal New York History. Before we uh, go back in time and, and talk about uh, Governor Tilden, I'm just curious uh, to get your reaction to where we are at this moment um, in American government uh, between presidents, but one of them hasn't uh, conceded the race, the transitions going forward. How do you think this era will be remembered? Um, I, I think that with everything going on in the world right now, in the midst of a pandemic, with all of this economic uncertainty, health uncertainty, the holidays are up in the air. Um, and of course, now sort of all these lingering, they're not really questions, just challenges about our election. It seems fairly clear and evident the outcome of the election, but the fact that it's not being, um, that we're not proceeding in, in a sort of normal way, um, I think people are going to look back at this as an incredibly uh, turbulent and uh, tense moment. And just as when I'm in the classroom and I say to the students, imagine how it must have been for the American people living through that. I think people will look back on us, um, hopefully, uh, with a little bit of sympathy, thinking, my goodness, what it must have been like for the American people to live through the fall and winter of 2020. Um, this uncertainty is it's 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 a definitely a sort of trying and at times frightening moment in our political history, uh, but also in our in our social history. Well, let's let's uh, look back now and, and talk about uh, Samuel Tilden. We called you up because uh, as I was uh, you know thinking about what you just said, uh, how interesting this time is. Are there any antecedents in, in American history? And everyone has been focusing on uh, the weirdness of the 1876 election. Before we talk about that, um, can you just give us a sense of um, how New York state politics and government led up to that moment? What, what it was like uh, just after the Civil War and during Governor Tilden's time? Well, New York politics were really the heart uh, of democratic politics in the United States in that time. Remember, right after the Civil War, the South was still going through Reconstruction and uh, the Democratic Party, which had long had its power base in the South, had uh, been discredited with the secessionists and the Confederacy in the Civil War. And so Republican campaigning was often uh, invoking the so-called bloody shirt, right, the memory of the Civil War. And how dare you even think about voting for a Democrat? They're the people who uh, who killed your brother at the Battle of Gettysburg or what have you. Um, and New York was at that time really one of several states that you could really look at as the ultimate swing state. It was a critical uh, electoral state uh, for both sides. But it was a period when the Democrats had a sort of peculiar alliance that they had built 
in the Empire State. There were sort of elite Jeffersonian-minded Democrats, and Tilden is one of them. And I'll talk about what Jeffersonian-minded meant to to Tilden. Uh, And then they had made temporary alliances of convenience with the growing working-class immigrant vote, uh, voters that supported like Tammany Hall, for example. And that made them a sort of formidable uh, coalition within New York state politics. At the same time, when you had one of the most powerful Republican organizations in the country uh, and within the National Republican Alliance, led by the likes of Roscoe Conkling. And so it was a a politically powerful state um, all around. And it was a state that produced most of the important Democratic presidential nominees for the rest of the 19th century after the Civil War. And so that's also uh, meaningful, including the only Democrat to be elected president in those years, Grover Cleveland. Uh, In those years, really, to be the governor of New York, any time between the Civil War and Franklin Roosevelt, to be the governor of New York made you – most of the time, a contender for the presidency. And so New York politics were really important. And Tilden was at the heart of that because those that tense coalition I was talking about uh, was something that he really had fought to navigate his entire career. Um, even You want to talk about weird, tense times. Even before the Civil War, as a very young man, he had come into politics as the Democratic Party in New York State was crumbling because in 1848, national Democrats were battling over whether they wanted to support what was called the Wilmot Proviso, this idea that any land that the United States conquered from Mexico in that war with Mexico uh, should not have slavery on it. And Tilden was one of these free soil Democrats who said slavery should not expand. And the Democratic Party, both nationally and in New York, battled ferociously over this, and they ended up splitting up. And the split actually started in New York State, and it was Tilden, young Tilden, in 1848, who wrote basically the manifesto denouncing the National Democrats for not embracing free soil. And calling for a convention of New York Democrats known as barn burners who were willing to step away from the party over this issue. And they ended up running a third party candidate, a former president and another prominent New Yorker, Martin Van Buren, in 1848 for president. Well, that was the beginning of his public, his you know, major public career. Um, but what would happen next was that during the Civil War, there were these uh, there was a lot of people in New York State who uh, might not have supported secession, but they also opposed uh, President Lincoln's conduct of the war. And Tilden was one of those figures within the Democratic Party. And he was an ally of a governor, um, Governor uh, Horatio uh, Seymour, who had been an outspoken opponent of Lincoln's war policies, including the draft, and who had showed uh, some sympathy for draft rioters in those horrible, uh, violent race riots in New York City in 1863. And when Seymour ran for president 
1868, Tilden was his campaign manager. And in those same years, Tilden had emerged as the chair of the Democratic Party in New York State. Now, at this time, he wasn't an elected politician, but he already was a prominent Democrat. And he also was fabulously wealthy. He had been a prominent railroad attorney. And so he was part of a coalition of elite uh, wealthy uh, Democrats who nevertheless were willing to make common cause with the more working class uh, Tammany Hall Democrats in order to win elections. But all of that was going to fall apart in 1871 because that is when the infamous boss Tweed got busted basically uh, by uh, the New York Times and a lot of reformers for all of the graft and all of the criminality that Tammany Hall had been going through. Uh, One of their operatives, Jimmy O'Brien, opened the books to the New York Times. And in the summer of 1871, um, people finally had the evidence of what they had always suspected, which was that Tammany was a criminal enterprise. And what that meant for Samuel Tilden was he finally had his opportunity to do what he had long desired to do, which is break with Tammany Hall. So he became, in uh, the fall of 1871 and into 1872, the foremost uh, spokesperson for good government. He led the opposition to Tammany Hall in the 1872 elections in New York. He got almost all of Tweed's people voted out of office. He got himself elected to the state assembly in 1872 as this reformer, and he already had emerged with a national reputation as a good government reformer, as this crusader uh, for clean government and not stealing the people's money. And of course, this reputation would uh, catapult him to being elected governor in 1874. Yeah, I want to put a, a pin in that for a moment and just return to the idea of the um, you were talking about uh, the Jeffersonian Democrats and uh, uh, yes. how they manifested. Well, uh, for for Tilden and for a lot of New York Democrats, their conception of what Jeffersonian meant and therefore what it meant to be a true Democrat was wrapped up in notions of small government that was not especially active, not especially engaged with people's lives, and also incredibly inexpensive, right? Austerity had been part of Jefferson's vision in their view, and certainly it was part of their vision as well. So these are not people who think that uh, the government should be used to assuage the suffering of the growing working class or to make life uh, easier or better for various members of an increasingly complicated society. You have to remember that in the mid-19th century, we're entering into an age of rapid industrialization and urbanization and immigration. And so the country is changing. It is it's changing rapidly, but also chaotically. And a lot of people are suffering along the way. And so there is a lot of clamoring for more engagement or more reform ideas, reform uh, of how the economy relates to people. And a lot of these Jeffersonian-minded Democrats, and Tilden was one of the foremost, uh, they believed, no, uh, what American government is supposed to be is minimalist. Uh, 
and not especially engaged and therefore uh, not very expensive. Um, and that, that, that combined, that Jeffersonian austerity and minimalism combined with his advocacy of clean government, good government, um, was really what Tilden's public life was all about in New York State. Now, that sometimes had a very ugly side. How, how do yeah. you mean an ugly side? Well, there's a few things about that. Number one, um, once Tilden became governor, um, he really was the real deal when it came to good government. And that could mean good things. It could mean continuing to make sure that the, the crooks from the tweed ring back in New York City were prosecuted and some of them ended up in jail, including Tweed himself. It could mean busting up another infamous corruption ring, uh, the, the canal ring, uh, which was a bipartisan group of legislators uh, who basically conspired with various contractors who were doing repair work on the Erie Canal and who basically were given through the canal ring lucrative contracts for very inflated prices. And then they got kickbacks from that. And so they were basically uh, skimming money off of the estate contracts. Well, he went after these kinds of people and he um, appointed a commission, Tilden did in March of 1875, to investigate the canal ring. And by the following year, they came out with a 3,000-page uh, report demonstrating millions of dollars have been stolen from taxpayers. And so this is good, right? You're, you're ending corruption. You're prosecuting these people. It is bipartisan corruption, and therefore, in a way, it's nonpartisan uh, clean government reforms, and, and it's saving the taxpayers' money. That, that all looks really nice. Indeed, under Tilden, uh, taxes were cut almost 50% in New York State. However, there's another side to that story, um, because when they start asking questions about why is city government so corrupt in the wake of the Tammany Hall scandals, um, Tilden and his allies, he, he appoints another commission, the Tilden Commission in 1875, and it is stocked with people like E.L. Godkin, who is this reform-minded writer, but also someone who despises working-class immigrant voters. And their solution of the Tilden Commission to the problems of corruption is essentially to disenfranchise working-class voters. He, uh, the, the Tilden Commission suggests that New York State should bring back property requirements. They should get rid of universal manhood suffrage and, and restore property requirements in order to vote in municipal elections, and they attempted to pursue this. They attempted to change the state constitution uh, in order to disenfranchise working class voters. And also austerity, uh, that might mean a tax cut, but it also means that in the 1870s, when the nation is in the depths of a terrible depression that started with the panic of 1873 and went on and on until the late 1870s, well, there were a lot of people in, say, the new Tammany Hall. Right? Uh, after Tweed, Tammany Hall didn't go away. Uh, their new leader was Honest John Kelly, and he and Tilden had gotten along for a while. But over time, people in the city were calling for 
more opportunity to spend money to relieve the burdens uh, on the poor in this depression, to have more government contracts, more public works, things like that. And when you're that inflexible on spending government money in the midst of a depression, a lot of people's suffering will just linger and linger. And so there are multiple angles uh, of how uh, Tilden's philosophy of government affected the lives of New Yorkers. Now, he wasn't governor for very long before um, being selected as the Democratic presidential nominee, right? It was not even a full term. That's correct. In fact, he uh, ended up foregoing uh, his uh, neck, his attempt at a second term uh, in order to run for uh, president of the United States. That's not that surprising because, as I said before, New York was so central to the American party system in those years. And so any governor of New York was going to be a prominent figure, especially a Democrat. And it's also not that surprising, given that he had already, even before being elected governor, he had already been catapulted to national celebrity as this crusader for for good government in the wake of the boss tweed scandals. But you're absolutely right. He's in his first term. And back then, New York governor was a shorter term than now. It was only a two-year term. Um, and he is already running for president of the United States. What were some of the major uh, debates and themes of the presidential campaign that year? Well, it was actually, in some ways, an ideal moment for a Tilden-like figure to seek the presidency, because President Grant, who was the incumbent, uh, the Republican incumbent, uh, was finishing up a second term, and his his administration had increasingly been riddled with scandals. There had been all sorts of problems. And so if, if Tilden was known as this good government crusader in New York State, the nation seemed to be crying out for good government reforms at the federal level. Um, and so that was a big part of his national pitch was that he was going to bring that sort of reform to the national level. And again, it was the invocation of what it meant to be a Jeffersonian Democrat. Uh, so again, it would be less government spending, what he saw and what many of those Democrats saw as wasteful spending. It was going to mean uh, holding on. Back then, there was a lot of controversy over the money question. And so he was what we would call a, a hard money Democrat. He was a supporter as most, as many uh, New York Democrats were, um, of the gold standard. Uh, and um, also, as uh, most Democrats at the time were, he wanted uh, a swift reconciliation with the South. And of course, that becomes even more controversial because this is toward the end of Reconstruction. Most Northerners were already growing weary of Reconstruction. Even people who at one time had understood the necessity of these reforms to the South after the Civil War in order to ensure economic and political rights for formerly enslaved people, right? There, there, was, a, there was a moment when there had been a national or at least a Northern political commitment to this, and that was fading 
terribly in these years. And Republicans who had been supportive of it had started to lose had, had certainly started to lose their enthusiasm. And meanwhile, Democrats were running against that sort of thing. Now, Tilden, um, his opposition was not as vitriolic as some other previous Democrats had been. But certainly when he talked about reconciliation with the South, that opened up a lot of very recent memories about the Civil War for voters both North and South, it, it was cheering to Southerners who voted uh, as Democrats uh, in greater numbers than they had in the previous couple of elections. And it also uh, caused continued controversy in some parts of the North. Was his position um, substantially different from uh, Rutherford Hayes's uh, from Ohio in terms of uh, Reconstruction in the South? They both seemed to say it's time for peace in the South, which seemed to imply no longer having a military commitment. In the years after the Civil War, how do you actually enforce Reconstruction and reform and voting rights for uh, the freedmen? Um, And the answer largely had been the presence of at least some federal military commitment. Hayes was as the Republican was saying, uh, we need peace in the South, but only if Southerners agreed um, to honor the uh, constitutional rights of everyone, including African-Americans. And Hayes made very clear that the constitutional rights included the new constitutional rights under the 14th and 15th Amendments. Uh, But Tilden and the Democrats, who were also calling for reconciliation and peace, they didn't make a similar commitment to uh, protection of the rights of the, the freedmen. But um, in reality, as it turned out, as, as we'll probably talk about in a moment, as, as it turned out, in reality, there wasn't as much difference between those positions as there might have been in elections four or eight years uh, earlier. So as everyone who's looked at this election knows, uh, it was just a disaster um, in terms of counting the vote and figuring out who won. Tilden has the distinction of being one of five people to win the popular vote, but not the White House. Uh, What happened between Election Day and the the final ultimate compromise of the next year? (laughs) Well... That was uh, quite a roller coaster. You're absolutely right. Um, when it's the first election day that they actually tried, they didn't completely nail this down, but it's actually the first one where it was supposed to be the same day all around the country. At the end of that election day, Rutherford Hayes went to bed thinking that he had lost, and he continued to believe that he had lost for some time. Um, at that time, you needed um, you needed 185. Um, today, the, the magic number electoral is votes, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Today, the magic number is 270. Back then, it was 185. And when they went to bed on election night, Tilden was up to 184, and there were three, and actually three and a half. But I'll get to Oregon in a moment. But there were three. Uh, states outstanding, and it looked like 
at least one and, and possibly all of those might go to Tilden. And so it looked as though he was clearly going to pick up that one more 185th electoral vote. But there were disputes in three southern states over how the vote had actually gone. And as we've seen in our own time, states have to certify the results and they have to uh, validate the results. And in the states of South Carolina and Florida and Louisiana, there were controversies. Um, in South Carolina, it was probably the case historians have argued it was probably the case that Hayes actually did win South Carolina, but they weren't sure. Everybody knew it was an, a corrupt election. Um, uh, one of the evidences of the fact that it was a corrupt election was that there were more votes cast than adult male eligible voters. And so that seemed to be a, a sign that perhaps there had been corruption. Um, and it was, again, bipartisan corruption uh, because Southern elections in those years are infamous and, and horrifyingly renowned for the violent suppression of the black vote by white supremacist militias. And often those groups were in league with the Democratic Party in the South. And so on the one hand, you have that kind of corruption. On the other hand, you have a lot of mischief among the Republicans who were flailingly trying to hold on to power in South Carolina. And so there was all sorts of corruption there, and nobody was sure precisely what had happened. Um, Florida was, believe it or not, even weirder. They had different results certified by different official bodies within Florida. And so the legislature had a result that they certified. The courts had one. You had three different totals. And uh, they didn't all agree. Um, and uh, some of the totals said it was Hayes who had won Florida. Some of the totals said it was Tilden who had won Florida. And then in Louisiana, uh, you had uh, similar complications. Um, and what you ended up with was they decided that Hayes had won all three. The, the Republicans were able somehow magically to ensure that Hayes had won Florida and South Carolina and Louisiana. And that seemed as though now he was going to be elected. But one, uh, the Democrats uh, controlled the House of Representatives, um, and the Democrats managed to invalidate one elector from Oregon, and so it was 184 to 184. Nobody had the magic 185. And um, when the Electoral College met on December the 6th, nobody had the necessary number. And then Congress had to intervene. Um, the 12th Amendment left some, through its sort of vague language, left some confusion about what part of Congress was actually authorized to make the final decisions, um, because if it was the House, then it was going to be Democratic. If the Senate controlled, it seemed clear that um, Hayes was going to be selected. Uh, there's all sorts of um, 
now there's anger boiling. Of course, Southerners are frustrated because it was their hope that they could finally get a Democratic president. They can't get a Southerner, of course, but they thought that if they had a Democrat, their party would be back in control and they could end Reconstruction and they could start undoing some of the attempts at reform in the South after the Civil War. Um, At one point, George McClellan, who had been the first in a line of inept uh, generals in charge of the Army of the Potomac uh, and the first in a line of inept generals who had been uh, dismissed by President Lincoln um, and who ended up running had, – had the audacity then to run against Lincoln in 1864. So now George McClellan, this Democrat, this former general, was actually uh, fuming about potentially um, raising troops uh, in case this uh, election was uh, decided against the Democrats and against Tilden. You have all sorts of controversy. And so what they ended up doing – was they ended up creating this special commission. And the commission was bipartisan. Uh, it was um, it was understood that you basically had a stalemate because of Republican power in the Senate and Democratic power in the House. And so they created this commission with members from both parties, from both houses, as well as members of the Supreme Court. And they ended up deciding the entire election based on uh, one associate justice of the Supreme Court, Joseph Bradley, who ended up siding with the Republicans. And so uh, Hayes ended up taking the election. Now, there's there's a few complexities here. One of them is Tilden's personality. Tilden fervently believed that he had won. And later he would have these pious statements that, well, I know that I won and I know that in my heart and so forth. I don't know the exact quote, but uh, that was essentially. Um, And in fact, he was seen as the front runner in the aftermath of this for the Democratic nomination for the 1880 election. Sounds familiar. Uh, Yeah, he, he ended up not being nominated. But for the time he was seen. But his personality ultimately was very passive. He was not sort of typical 19th century blustery uh, politician with soaring oratory and a following of sort of uh, people who are uh, uh, inspired by his rhetoric. He he was a a rather – I mean he he was a serious reformer and he had ideas, but he he was a rather – uh, reserved and certainly not an aggressive uh, politician. And so his passivity may have contributed in part to the ultimate outcome here. Um, and that might have been to the good. After all, we ended up not having a war over this, which I think is a good outcome. But a much less pleasant uh, result of all of this is that Hayes still could have been blocked because, as I mentioned earlier, you needed a joint session of Congress in order to um, ratify what had happened, to say these results are legitimate. And since the Democrats controlled the House of Representatives, they simply could have not 
allow the House of Representatives to be part of that. And then you don't have a new president come Inauguration Day, which that year was on March the 5th. Yeah, so there's a a lot longer time for this to all play out than what we're used to. That's right. Until the 1930s, the interregnum between election and inauguration went until March 4th, unless March 4th uh, was a Sunday and then it would be March 5th. Um, And so the, the Congress in this winter could have still blocked this. And this is where it gets particularly ugly because the deal that essentially is struck between the House Democrats who could have prevented Congress from convening to certify the results and the Republicans who want Hayes in the presidency is that they will, the Democrats will go along with this. They'll allow him to have his election, uh, his results ratified. Uh, But in uh, return, Hayes and the Republicans had to agree that they were not going to use the federal government, use the military to enforce the 14th and 15th Amendments to protect the civil rights, the voting rights of African-Americans in the South. Essentially, Reconstruction, which had been dying a sad and violent death anyway in the South, was now finished off completely with this bargain, this bargain in 1877. And so Hayes entered the presidency under a cloud of controversy and uh, Southern African-Americans entered into a period uh, of even less uh, political and social uh, protections and rights uh, than they had had in the struggles of the 1870s. So it's fair to say that's the only time we've picked a president in that convoluted a fashion. I mean, luckily, it hasn't it hasn't come down to uh, a situation where it's been that close or that contested very often since. Yeah, not since. I mean, we've had some near misses earlier. I mean, the, the 1800 election was wacky because you ended up by accident with a tie between Jefferson and his own running mate, Aaron Burr. Um, which is one of the reasons uh, they ended up changing the Constitution, uh, obviously not clearly enough because we ended up with, with this issue. But, um, yes, this, this, was a, this was as strange as it's gotten in our political history. You said that Tilden was favored to come back uh, the next time around uh, but didn't end up winning the nomination. What happened to him after this? After this, um, he remained sort of a leading figure in the what we would call the swallowtail faction of the New York Democratic Party. The swallowtails, that's known for their sort of, they're, they're very well-dressed uh, New York uh, Democrats. And they're the elites, the good government reformers. Again, they're still for austerity. They're still for um, Jeffersonian principles and so forth. And, and he remained uh, their foremost leader, and he remained a prominent national figure. People thought, as I said, that in 1880 it might be uh, his second chance, but the Democratic Party ended up going a different direction. They actually ended up nominating a uh, Civil War general, um, actually a hero from Gettysburg, 
um, Winfield Scott Hancock, whose nickname was Hancock the Superb. Uh, and so you had uh, Hancock versus Garfield, which actually it was actually even closer an election than the one we've just described in the popular vote. Uh, all these elections in the Gilded Age were incredibly close. Um, this one, uh, 1876, Tilden won by probably about a quarter million votes, but not in the Electoral College. Uh, the the Garfield-Hancock uh, election was far closer than that. It was actually the closest in American history. But for Tilden, uh, he was going to be on the sidelines. But But what I will say is his vision of what the Democratic Party should be in New York State continued to have a tension uh, with the likes of Tammany Hall and Honest John Kelly and others who embraced a more uh, working class oriented and often more willing to spend government money. Also, uh, not as not as um, meticulous in their avoidance of corrupt practices either. Um, but but his vision would would continue at the state level. Uh, and certainly you see it with the emergence of Grover Cleveland, because Grover Cleveland was another reform-minded Democrat who also did battle with Tammany Hall and also crusaded against corruption and also favored uh, government austerity and the gold standard. And unlike Tilden, he was elected president two separate occasions. Um, and so Tilden's ideas don't necessarily go away. He didn't live that much longer. He passed away uh, in 1886. And actually, that's a sort of interesting footnote to his career in New York. I, I said earlier that he had made a great deal of money as a railroad lawyer. And a lot of that money he left uh, in a fund set up at his instructions, over, over $2 million, which is a lot of money now, but wow. even more money then. Um, and uh, that money was to help create, in his words, a, a great library uh, for New York City. There were already a couple of libraries in New York, but his uh, bequest helped create what we know of as, as the New York Public Library. Uh, and so uh, that was sort of his... I suppose, his, his final contribution, uh, which is probably far better uh, in, in – it's probably uh, far more uplifting than uh, how his election turned out, both for the controversies that 1876 caused in national politics and the horrendous effects that it caused for African Americans in the South. Um, just one more thing. Uh you know, it occurs to me we had the the Roosevelts and and Dewey and Al Smith um, later from New York. We've got a, a New Yorker as president now, although not from the traditional mold. That's to say the least. Um, <laughs> how did New York lose its clout in terms of presidential nominating um, contests in the 20th century? You know, it, it it faded after a while. And you're describing an era when being governor of New York puts you on the doorstep. Oh, absolutely. Um, and it's, it's an interesting question because there were plenty of New Yorkers who continued to be important potential figures in national politics. If you think of Nelson Rockefeller and his multiple campaigns uh, for the Republican nomination in the 1960s. Uh, but you're right that New York's clout was never 
going to be quite the same after, I guess, the mid-20th century. And I think part of that is demography. Part of that was the fact that um, New York ceased to be the biggest state, uh, the the largest population in the Union. Um, And I think in our own times, uh, perhaps part of it has also been the fact that um, New York, in many ways, is no longer quite the swing state it used to be. Um, In the Gilded Age and in the early 20th century as well, New York was hotly contested. Um, And through most of the 20th century, this was so. Um, But in more recent times, I think the the decline of New York's dominant position within the national population, New York still is the economic and cultural center of the United States and, and some would argue the universe, but, but it no longer has that same dominant force in politics. And that has, I think, reflected on the fact that being a governor of New York is no longer a sure sort of an automatic ticket to national candidacy. But uh, on the other hand, I don't think that it's completely gone either. I mean, in the last few elections, there's been at least on one side or the other a New Yorker nominated, and a lot of New York governors in the last many decades have at least constantly been uh, rumored to be presidential uh, material. And so I don't think it, that is completely gone, but certainly it's diminished from what it was in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. All right, that does it for this episode of the WAMC News Podcast. Thanks so much for listening to it. Until next time, I'm Ian Pickus.